Welcome back to the lecture series on decision-making in public service. We just uh, wrapped up part two of Daniel Kahneman, and we're moving into part three this for this lecture, which is titled Overconfidence. You may remember that at the tail end of part two, we were trying, we ended with regression to the mean and ways to tame intuitive predictions, taking the mean and adjusting from there. In this part, we're going to look more in depth at the role that overconfidence plays in our mental life, and we'll walk through a number of illusions from this chapter that, in one way or another, inflict all of us. The first is uh, the illusion of understanding, which is the first chapter that uh, Common starts with this section. And he starts by referencing Nassim Tlaib's book, The Black Swan, and Tlaib's introduction of the narrative fallacy. And the narrative fallacy kind of highlights that explanatory the explanatory stories that people find, as Kahneman says, compelling are simple or concrete rather than abstract, assign a larger role to talent, stupidity, and intentions than to luck, and focus on a few striking events that happened rather than on the countless events that failed to happen. And this is building back into the notion that we like simple, uncomplicated, straightforward stories to explain things. Kahneman highlights the halo effect discussed earlier contributes to coherence because it inclines us to match our view of all the qualities of a person to our judgment of one attribute, one attribute that is particularly significant. If we think a baseball pitcher is handsome and athletic, for example, we are likely to rate him better at throwing the ball. Halos can also be negative. If we think a player is ugly, we will probably underrate his athletic ability. The halo effect helps keep explanatory narratives simple and coherent by exaggerating the consistency of evaluations. Good people do only good things, and bad people are all bad. This, again, is a tendency to... Uh, Start with a conclusion and then base all your evidence and narrative around that. This is what I think one of the things that good art combats, particularly with storytelling. And uh, one of the things that I like in good television is characters that are more complex than that, that aren't either just good characters or bad characters, but more clearly highlights the nuances of how, in general, all people engage in good and bad behavior. And um, Kahneman tells a story about how a lot of people said they knew well before the 2008 financial crisis that it was going to happen, that it was inevitable. And this is when we look back at some event that happened and tell ourselves a narrative about what we knew about it, even if at the time we did not. And... Kahneman highlights that there are some social costs to hindsight and these stories we tell ourselves about events that have already happened. 
Kahneman gives us a few things to think about here. He says, the mind that makes up narratives about the past is a sense-making organ. When an unpredicted event occurs, we immediately adjust our view of the world to accommodate the surprise. He goes on to say, a general limitation of the human mind is its imperfect ability to reconstruct past states of knowledge or beliefs that have changed. Once you adopt a new view of the world or of any part of it, you immediately leave immediately lose much of your ability to recall what you used to believe before your mind changed. So this is the idea that as you learn new ideas and accept new beliefs, it's hard to put yourself in the same mindset when you believed those things in the past. That's why it's hard to remember what it's like to, to be a child or even a teenager and the thoughts and beliefs that you strongly held on to them as you've grown, hopefully, over time, it's even hard to remember what those thought processes were like. Asked to reconstruct their former beliefs, Kahneman says, people retrieve their current ones instead, another instance of substitution. And many cannot believe that they ever felt differently. Your inability to reconstruct past beliefs inevitably cause you to underestimate the extent to which you were surprised by past events. This is can be thought of as the I knew it all along effect or the hindsight bias. And in general, this is the idea that we remember things differently than they actually played out in our head at the time. And they're biased in the way of whatever narrative we come up with, we believe not only that to be the true narrative, but also that we knew it all along. The tendency to revise the history of one's beliefs in light of what actually happened produces a robust cognitive illusion. Hindsight bias has pernicious effects on the evaluation of decision makers. It leads observers to assess the quality of a decision not by whether the process was sound, but by whether its outcome was good or bad. This also plays out in how we think about our sports teams. As an example, if a coach gets lucky, even after making a bad decision in a game, um, we, can, we say they have a lot of extra skill just because it turned out well, even if the decision-making process for getting there was bad. Hindsight is especially unkind to decision-makers who act as agents for others, physicians, financial advisors, third-base coaches, CEOs, social workers, diplomats, politicians. We are prone to blame decision-makers for good decisions that worked out badly and to give them too little credit for successful moves that appear obvious only after the fact. There is a clear outcome bias. Again, the outcome the result of the decision-making process. Even if it was largely influenced by luck, if it was good, we assign it to a good decision-making process. The outcome was bad. We assign it to a, a, a stupid decision-making process. Kahneman goes on to say, indeed the halo effect is so powerful that you probably find yourself resisting the idea that the same person and the same behaviors appear methodical when things are going well and rigid when they are going poorly. Because of the halo effect, we get the causal relationship backwards. 
We are prone to believe that the firm fails because its CEO is rigid, when the truth is that the CEO appears to be rigid because the firm is failing. This is how illusions of understanding are born. Conway goes on to say, the basic message of this book, Built to Last, and other similar books, is that good managerial practices can be identified and that good practices will, re will be rewarded by good results. Both messages are overstated. The comparison of firms that have been more or less successful is to a significant extent a comparison between firms that have been more or less lucky. Knowing the importance of luck, you should be particularly suspicious when highly consistent patterns, patterns emerge from the comparison of successful and less successful firms. In the presence of randomness, regular patterns can only be mirages. Again, this is taking us back to um, comments that Kahneman has highlighted earlier in the book about regression to the mean and the role of luck in outcomes and that we consistently overplay the role of talent and skill and underplay the role of luck. Stories of how businesses rise and fall strike a chord with readers by offering what the human mind needs, a simple message of triumph and failure that identifies clear causes and ignores the determinative power of luck and the inevitability of regression. So again, if a story has a clear, straightforward, coherent identification of what happened and keeps the story going in one direction, we're more likely to believe that than the messiness of the truth and the role of randomness. Connor leaves us this chapter with a couple of speaking of hindsights. He says, the mistake appears obvious, but it is just hindsight. You could not have known in advance. Another one. He's learning too much from the success story, which is too tidy. He has fallen for a narrative fallacy. Another one. Let's not fall for the outcome bias. This was a stupid decision, even though it worked out well. Takes us to the next chapter, chapter 20 in the book, which is the illusion of validity. Kahneman starts the chapter with this explanation. System one is designed to jump to conclusions from little evidence, and it is not designed to know the size of its jumps. Because of what you see is all there is, only the evidence at hand counts. Because of confidence by coherence, the subjective confidence we have in our opinions, reflects the coherence of the story that System 1 and System 2 have constructed. The amount of evidence and its quality do not count for much because poor evidence can make a very good story. For some of our most important beliefs, we have no evidence at all, except that people we love and trust hold these beliefs. Considering how little we know, the confidence we have in our beliefs is preposterous, and it is also essential. Kahneman talks about the illusion of validity and how we, for, he gives an example from his own life where they knew the base rate uh, and chose to ignore the evidence because in this one example, um, their forecast, they believed, even though they had no really good, strong reasoning for holding on to those beliefs to the degree that which they did. This is the illusion of validity. 
He says, looking back, the most striking part of the story, the one that he shares about his own personal life, is that our knowledge of the general rule that we could not predict had no effect on our confidence in individual cases. He goes on to say, subjective confidence in a judgment is not a reasoned evaluation of the probability that this judgment is correct. Confidence is a feeling which reflects the coherence of the information and the cognitive ease of processing it. It is wise to take admissions of uncertainty seriously, but declarations of high confidence mainly tell you that an individual has constructed a coherent story in his mind, not necessarily that the story is true. This goes on to um, be applied to a, a couple of different experts. One is uh, fund managers. And Kahneman says, nevertheless, the evidence from more than 50 years of research is conclusive. For a large majority of fund managers, the selection of stocks is more like rolling dice than, play, than playing poker. Typically, at least two out of every three mutual funds underperform the overall market in any given year. He says, the illusion of skill is not only an individual aberration. It is deeply ingrained in the culture of the industry, in this case, He's talking about the finance industry, but this also plays out in other industries. Maybe academia could also be guilty of this. He says, facts that challenge such basic assumptions and thereby threaten people's livelihood and self-esteem are simply not absorbed. The mind does not digest them. This is particularly true of statistical studies of performance which provide base rate information that people generally ignore when it clashes with their personal impressions from experience. Kahneman uh, highlights that cognitive illusions can be even more stubborn than visual illusions. He says, uh, also finally, the illusions of validity and skill are supported by a powerful professional culture. We know that people can maintain an unshakable faith in any proposition, however absurd, when they are sustained by a community of like-minded believers. Given the professional culture of the financial community, it is not surprising that large numbers of individuals in, the, in that world believe themselves to be among the chosen few who can do what they believe others cannot. You can think of this about any other groups that you're a part of, family narratives, um, religious narratives, other industry narratives, industries to which you belong. When a group of people hold the same beliefs and positively reinforce those beliefs amongst the members that hold those beliefs or reinforce them also negatively, <laughs> then this illusion of validity occurs. The illusion that we understand the past fosters overconfidence in our ability to predict the future. This is as Kahneman's highlighting the illusions of pundits who think they know more than they do. The idea that large historical events are determined by luck is profoundly shocking, although it is demonstrably true. Yet the illusion of valid prediction remains intact, a fact that is exploited by people whose business is prediction, not only financial experts, but pundits in business and politics too. Common highlights, uh, some research by Philip Tetlock, 
who wrote a book in 2005 called Expert Political Judgment, How Good Is It? How Can We Know? And he says the results were devastating. The experts performed worse than they would have if they had simply assigned equal probabilities to each of the three potential outcomes as part of the study. In other words, people who spend their time and earn their living studying a particular topic produce a poor, produce poorer predictions than dart-throwing monkeys who would have distributed their consequences evenly over the options. Even in the region they knew best, experts were not significantly better than non-specialists. Those who know more, those who know more forecast, those who know more forecast very slightly better than those who know less but those with the most knowledge are often less reliable. The reason is that the person who acquires more knowledge develops an enhanced illusion of the skill and becomes unrealistically confident. So, this chapter is really in part highlighting that even though a lot of people go around saying that they can predict the future, their ability to do so um, is actually quite limited. And Kahneman tells us that uh, in part, this is really because the world is a very complex place. He says the main point of this chapter is not that people who attempt to predict the future make many errors that goes without saying. The first lesson is that errors of prediction are inevitable because the world is unpredictable. The second is that high subjective confidence is not to be trusted as an indicator of accuracy. Low confidence could be more informative. Okay. Moving on to chapter 21, we look at intuitions versus formulas. Here, Kahneman highlights an interesting book called Clinical versus Statistical Prediction, a Theoretical Analysis and Review of the Evidence. And this is from Paul Meal. Um, who had faculty appointments in psychology, law, psychiatry, neurology, and philosophy. And Mill's basic, uh, uh, basic argument is that in many, many cases, basic formulas provide better outcomes than intuitive answers from experts. Um, he looks at this in a number of domains. Uh, he looks at trained counselors who are predicting the grades of freshmen at the end of the school year. Um, and the formula, uh, there's a, st a statistical formula that only used high school grades in one aptitude test. And this formula was more accurate than 11 of the 14 counselors. And Mill reported generally similar results across a variety of other forecast outcomes including violations of parole, success in pilot training, and criminal recidivism. This brings to the forefront, I think, a really important question for those interested in public service. In what domains and in what areas should we let experts make decisions? And in what domains should the formulas be allowed or algorithms be allowed to make the decisions? And here we're finding some evidence um, of some situations in which basic formulas outperform experts. Um, Kahneman goes on to say that the number of studies reporting comparisons of clinical and statistical predictions has increased to roughly 200, but the score in the contest between algorithms and humans has not changed. 
About 60% of the studies have shown significantly better accuracy for algorithms. The other comparisons scored a draw in accuracy, but a tie is tantamount to a win for the statistical results, which are normally much less expensive to use than expert judgment. No exception has been convincingly documented, is what Kahneman leaves us with. The range of predicted outcomes, just to continue highlighting this, has expanded to cover medical variables such as the longevity of cancer patients, the length of hospital stays, the diagnosis of cardiac disease, and the susceptibility of babies to sudden infant death syndrome. Economic measures such as the prospects of success for new businesses, the evaluation of credit risks by banks, and the future career satisfaction of workers. Questions of interest to government agencies. Individual assessments of the suitability of foster parents, the odds of recidivism among juvenile offenders, and the likelihood of other forms of violent behavior, and miscellaneous outcomes such as the evaluation of scientific presentations, the winners of football games, and the future prices of Bordeaux wines. Each of these domains entails a significant degree of uncertainty and unpredictability. We describe them as low-validity environments. In every case, the accuracy of experts was matched or exceeded by a simple algorithm. So again, a lot of example for basic algorithms outperforming experts. And again, this has really important consequences, I think, for when we should substitute human decision-making for decision-making of algorithms. Why are experts inferior to algorithms, Kahneman asks. One reason, which Mill suspected, is that experts try to be clever, think outside the box, and consider complex combinations of features in making their predictions. Complexity may work in the odd case, but more often than not, it reduces validity. Simple combinations of features are better. Several studies have shown that human decision-makers are inferior to a prediction formula even when they are given the scores suggested by the formula. Kahneman goes on to say, Another reason for the inferiority of, ex inferiority of expert judgment is that humans are incorrigibly inconsistent in making summary judgments of complex information. He gives some examples of that. The, goes on to say the widespread inconsistency is probably due to the extreme context dependency of system one. We know from studies of priming, which we've talked about in this course, the unnoticed stimuli in our environment have a substantial influence on our thoughts and actions. For example, the prospects of a convict being granted parole may change significantly during the time that elapses between successive food breaks and the parole judge's schedule. Formulas do not suffer from such problems. The research suggests a surprising conclusion. To maximize predictive accuracy, final decisions should be left to formulas, especially in low validity environments. This is something that we really wrestle with as a society, particularly when those low validity environments have high consequences. But the evidence nonetheless is that the formulas across a wide array of domains outperform human experts. And this plays out in time-honored professions, like, for example, judges.
Kahneman gives more examples of these. He also talks about the general hostility to algorithms, which we see play out in society. Um, and despite its superior performance on average, we have a hard time relying on these algorithms and formulas for important decisions. Uh, Kahneman's hopeful on this point. He, he says the prejudice against algorithms is magnified when the decisions are consequential, which I just mentioned. But fortunately, he says, the hostility of algorithms will probably soften as their role in everyday life continues to expand. Give some examples. Looking for books or music we might enjoy. We appreciate recommendations generated by software. We take it for granted that decisions about credit limits are made without the direct intervention of any human judgment. We are increasingly exposed to guidelines that have the form of simple algorithms, such as the ratio of good and bad cholesterol levels we should try to attain. Uh, the public is now well aware that formulas may do better than humans in some critical decisions in the world of sports. For example, how much a professional team should pay for particular rookie players or when to punt on fourth down. The expanding list of tasks that are assigned to algorithms should eventually reduce the discomfort that most people feel when they first encounter the pattern of results that Mill described in his disturbing little book. And towards the end of the chapter, Kahneman says a more general lesson that he has learned is to not simply trust, do not simply trust intuitive judgment, your own or that of others, but do not dismiss it either. There is a role that intuitive judgment can play in certain types of situations, which we're going to get to. That brings us to the next chapter, expert intuition. When can we trust it? Uh, Kahneman mentions Malcolm Gladwell's book Blink, uh, somebody he um, coll collaborated with, Gary Klein, who does a lot of work into intuition and rapid decision-making. And there's a bit of a debate here you should be aware of. Um, and the chapter highlights that. Um, one of the first quotes I'd like to highlight is from Herbert Simon uh, here again. The model of intuitive decision-making as pattern recognition develops ideas presented some time ago by Herbert Simon, perhaps the only scholar who is recognized and admired as a hero and founding figure by all the competing clans and tribes in the study of decision-making. I also am a big Herbert Simon fan. Kahneman says, I quoted Herbert Simon's definition of intuition in the introduction, but it will make more sense when I repeat it now. The situation has provided a cue this cue has given the expert access to information stored in memory, and the information provides the answer. Intuition is nothing more and nothing less than recognition. The moral of Simon's remark is that the mystery of knowing without knowing is not a distinctive feature of intuition. It is the norm of mental life. So intuition is just when you've been repeated to a situation that's stable enough that you can identify the parameters of it. And you do it a lot of times. So, Kahneman says, 
If subjective confidence is not to be trusted, how can we evaluate the probable validity of an intuitive judgment? In other words, when can we trust our intuition? When can we trust experts' intuition? When do judgments reflect true expertise? When do they display an illusion of validity? The answer comes from two basic conditions for acquiring a skill. First, an environment that is sufficiently regular to be predictable. Second, an opportunity to learn these regularities through prolonged practice. When both these conditions are satisfied, intuitions are likely to be skilled. But, as Kahneman highlights, some environments are worse than irregular. Not only are they irregular, they're not predictable. Um, they are irregular in a way that causes us to draw the wrong lessons. Robin Hogarth described wicked environments in which professionals are likely to learn the wrong lessons from experience. Um, he gives an example of a doctor um, from some other research who had a hunch that by palpitating the patient's tongue, without washing his hands between patients, that he could test whether or not they were going to develop typhoid. And unfortunately, he was giving them all typhoid. He thought his method was predicting whether or not they had typhoid, but he was actually giving them typhoid. Kahneman says, if a strong predictive cue exists, human observers will find it, given a decent opportunity to do so. Statistical algorithms greatly outdo humans in noisy environments for two reasons. Noisy, you can read here, is irregular, not easily predictable, complex. Statistical algorithms greatly outdo humans in noisy environments for two reasons. They are more likely than human judges to detect weakly valid cues and much more likely to maintain a modest level of accuracy by using such cues consistently. <coughs> Remember this rule. Intuition cannot be trusted in the absence of stable regularities in the environment. Common goes on to say, whether professionals have a choice to develop intuitive expertise depends essentially on the quality and speed of feedback as well as on sufficient opportunity to practice. Kahneman goes on to say, our conclusion, his and Gary Klein's, was that for the most part, it is possible to distinguish between, excuse me, to distinguish intuitions that are likely to be valid from those that are likely to be bogus. If the environment is sufficiently regular, and if the judge has a chance, has had a chance to learn its regularities, the associative machinery will recognize situations and generate quick and accurate predictions and decisions. You can trust someone's intuitions if these conditions are met. When evaluating expert intuition, you should, always, you should always consider whether there was an adequate opportunity to learn the cues, even in a regular environment. In a less regular or low-validity environment, the heuristics of judgment are invoked. System 1 is often able to produce quick answers to difficult questions by substitution, creating coherence where there is none. The question that is answered is not the one that was intended, but the answer is produced quickly and may be sufficiently plausible to pass the lax and lenient review of System 2. 
Moving on, Kahneman talks about taking the outside view as a way to deal with overconfidence. Um, and he highlights the story for some example of how he come to learn the outside view. Um, and the argument for taking the outside view in general is that you should start with baseline predictions and that it is really hard for us to do this when we have subjective experience and a narrative right in front of us. This statistical information is about base rates is routinely discarded when it is incompatible with one's personal impressions of a case. But if we look at the base rate, if we step outside of our project and look at how a typical project like ours is likely to succeed, then we can take the outside view and get a better estimate of the likelihood of success. One of the things that keeps us from taking the outside view is the planning fallacy. And this describes plans and forecasts, as Kahneman says, that are unrealistically close to best case scenarios or could be improved by consulting the statistics of a similar case. How do we mitigate the planning fallacy? And again, we can try to take the outside view, and the way that we could do that is look for reference class forecasting. So try to find projects that are similar to the one you're engaging in and find regular data on how likely they succeed or fail and how long it takes. And there are a lot of things that push against this. There's a an optimistic bias, there's a planning fallacy. Um, people in the midst of the details of a plan can only see the ways in which it will succeed and have a best case scenario and don't think to plan for all the things that could potentially go wrong. Unknown unknowns, you might call them. But it gives us, uh, Kahneman gives us some examples here of how to overcome the planning fallacy and try to encourage teams to take the outside view. Uh, and he takes this from some of the work uh, by Bent Flybeard, who suggests one, identify an appropriate reference class. Look for a project that is similar to the one you're doing. Two, obtain the statistics of the reference class in terms of cost, in terms of success, in terms of length. Use the statistics to generate a baseline prediction. Should start sounding like what we, the strategy for taming intuitive predictions, starting with the mean. And third, use specific information about the case to adjust the baseline prediction. If there are particular reasons to expect the optimistic bias to be more or less pronounced in this project than in the others of the same type. So again, find some good statistics that are similar to your case or to the question you're trying to answer. Find the average and adjust based on the information that you have. Final chapter of part three is the engine of capitalism. Kahneman starts this chapter with this quote. The planning fallacy is only one of the manifestations of a pervasive optimistic bias. 
Most of us view the world as more benign than it really is. Our, our, our own attributes as more favorable than they truly are, and the goals we adopt as more achievable than they are likely to be. We also tend to exaggerate our ability to forecast the future, which fosters optimistic overconfidence. In terms of its consequences for decisions, the optimistic bias may well be the most significant of the cognitive biases. Because optimistic bias can be both a blessing and a risk, you should be both happy and, if, and wary if you are temperamentally optimistic. The evidence suggests, as Kahneman says, that an optimistic bias plays a role, sometimes a dominant role, whenever individuals or institutions voluntarily take on significant risks. More often than not, risk takers underestimate the odds they face and do, and do invest. More often than not, risk takers underestimate the odds they face and do invest sufficient and do not invest sufficient effort to find out what the odds are. The evidence suggests the optimist that optimism is widespread, stubborn, and costly. The optimistic risk-taking of entrepreneurs surely contributes to the economic dynamism of a capitalistic society, even if most risk-takers end up disappointed. However, Marto Coelho of the London School of Economics has pointed out the difficult policy issues that arise when founders of small businesses ask the government to support them in decisions that are most likely to end badly. As part of this optimism, optimism bias, people experience uh, another bias known as competition neglect. Um, and this is just something people don't think about. Overconfidence plays a role. And um, Kahneman says, when they come together, the emotional, cognitive, and social factors that support exaggerated optimis optimism are a heady brew, which sometimes leads people to take risks that they would avoid if they knew the odds. The effects of high optimism on decision-making are at best a mixed blessing, but the contribution of optimism to good implementation is certainly positive. The main benefit of optimism is resilience in the face of setbacks. Common says, I have always believed that scientific research is another domain where a form of optimism is essential to success. I have yet to meet a successful scientist who lacks the ability to exaggerate the importance of what he or she is doing. And I believe that someone who lacks a delusional sense of significance will wilt in the face of repeated experiences of multiple small failures and rare successes, the fate of most researchers. I think Kahneman indicts me there as well. Kahneman says, How, uh, overconfidence is a direct consequence of features of system one that can be tamed, but not vanquished. The main obstacle is the subjective that subjective confidence is determined by the coherence of the story one has constructed, not by the quality and amount of the information that supports it. And one way to do to combat this is to find ways to legitimize doubt, particularly uh, when you think the planning fallacy 
might be at play. It helps keep you from running headlong into situations that a pause for doubt might have questioned the severe role that overconfidence plays in your estimates of success. I can say that I have also fallen victim to this a number of times in my personal life. Um, and if I had stopped to take the time to pause and seriously consider failure as an option, then it could have saved me a lot of time and money. Hope you enjoyed part three on overconfidence. The next part will be on choices. Thanks for following along and uh, hope you're enjoying the lectures.